Where all my children are the light Born in the sinning But steady striving to do right My people are warriors All we know is to fight Pray they see God in everything I write here F. Trump campaign knowledge of dirt Papadopoulos admitted telling at least one individual outside of the campaign, specifically the then Greek foreign minister about Russia's obtaining Clinton related emails. In addition, a different foreign government informed the FBI that 10 days after meeting with Mifsud in late April 2016, Papadopoulos suggested that the Trump campaign had received indications from the Russian government that it could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information that will be damaging Hillary Clinton. This conversation occurred after the GRU spearfished Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta and stole his emails and the GRU hacked into the DCCC and DNC. See volume one, sections 3A and 3B. Such disclosures are... Such disclosures raised questions about whether Papadopoulos informed any Trump campaign official about the emails. When interviewed, Papadopoulos and the campaign officials who interacted with him told the office that they could not recall Papadopoulos sharing the information that Russia had obtained dirt on candidate Clinton in the form of emails or that Russia could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information about Clinton. 15 minutes, Yash. Papadopoulos stated that he could not clearly recall having told anyone on the campaign and wavered about whether he accurately remembered an incident in which Clovis had been upset after hearing Papadopoulos tell Clovis that, after hearing Papadopoulos tell Clovis that Papadopoulos thought they have her emails. The campaign officials who interacted or corresponded with Papadopoulos have similarly stated with varying degrees of certainty that he did not tell them. Senior policy advisor Stephen Miller, for example, did not remember hearing anything from Papadopoulos or Clovis about Russia having emails of or dirt on candidate Clinton. Clovis stated that he did not recall anyone, including Papadopoulos, having given him non-public information that a foreign government might be in possession of material damaging to Hillary Clinton. The latter part of page 93 redacted for grand jury reasons. And the first sentence on 94 redacted for a grand jury. No documentary evidence and nothing in the email accounts or other communications facilities reviewed by the office shows that Papadopoulos shared this information with the campaign. G, additional George Papadopoulos contact. The office investigated another Russia-related contact with Papadopoulos. The office was not fully able to explore the contact because the individual at issue, Sergi Milian, remained out of the country since the inception of our investigation and declined to meet with members of the office despite our repeated efforts to obtain an interview. Papadopoulos first connected with Milian via LinkedIn on July 15th, 2016. Shortly after, Papadopoulos had attended the TAG Summit with Clovis. Milian, an American citizen who was a native of Belarus, introduced himself as president of the New York-based Russian American Chamber of Congress. Commerce. New York-based Russian American Chamber of Commerce 
and claimed that through that position, he had insider knowledge and direct access to the top hierarchy in Russian politics. Papadopoulos asked Timofeev whether he had heard of Milian. Although Timofeev said no, Papadopoulos met Milian in New York City. The meetings took place on July 30th and August 1st, 2016. Afterwards, Milian invited Papadopoulos to attend and potentially speak at two international energy conferences, including one that was to be held in Moscow in September 2016. Papadopoulos ultimately did not attend either conference. On July 31st, 2016, following his first in-person meeting with Milian, Papadopoulos emailed Trump campaign official Bo Denisik, to say that he had been contacted by some leaders of Russian-American voters here in the U.S. about their interest in voting for Mr. Trump and to ask whether he should put you in touch with their group, U.S.-Russia Chamber of Commerce. Denisek thanked Papadopoulos for taking the initiative but asked him to hold off with outreach to Russian-Americans because too many articles had already portrayed the campaign, then campaign chairman Paul Manafort and candidate Trump as being pro-Russian. On August 23rd, 2016, Milian sent a Facebook message to Papadopoulos promising that he would share with you a disruptive technology that might be instrumental in your political work for the campaign. Papadopoulos claimed to have no recollection of this matter. On November 9th, 2016, shortly after the election, Papadopoulos arranged to meet Milian in, in Chicago to discuss business opportunities, including potential work with Russian billionaires who are not under sanctions. The meeting took place on November 14th, 2016 at the Trump Hotel and Tower in Chicago. According to Papadopoulos, the two men discussed partnering on business deals, but Papadopoulos perceived that Millian's attitude toward him changed when Papadopoulos stated that he was only pursuing private sector opportunities and was not interested in in a job in the administration. The two remained in contact, however, and had extended online discussions about possible business opportunities in Russia. The two also arranged to meet at a Washington, D.C. bar when both attended Trump's inauguration in late January 2017. Number three, Carter Page. Carter Page worked for the Trump campaign from January 2016 to September 2016. He was formally and publicly announced as a foreign policy advisor by the candidate in March 2016. Page had lived and worked in Russia, and he had been approached by Russian intelligence officers several years before he volunteered for the Trump campaign. During his time with the campaign, Page advocated pro-Russia foreign policy positions and traveled to Moscow in his personal capacity. Yasha, five minutes. Russian intelligence officials had formed relationships with Page in 2008 and 2013, and Russian officials may have focused on Page in 2016 because of his affiliation with the campaign. However, the investigation did not establish that Page coordinated with the Russian government in its efforts to interfere with the 2016 presidential election. Before he began working for the campaign in January 2016, Page had substantial prior experience studying Russian policy issues and living and working in Moscow from 2004 to 2007. Page was the deputy branch manager of Merrill Lynch's Moscow office 
There, he worked on transactions involving the Russian energy company Gazprom and came to know Gazprom's deputy chief financial officer, Sergei Yatsenko. In 2008, Page founded Global Energy Capital LLC, GEC, an investment management advisory firm focused on the energy sector in emerging markets. Next line is redacted for grand jury. The company otherwise had no sources of income and Page was forced to draw down his life savings to support himself and pursue his business venture. Page asked Yatsenko to work with him at GEC as a senior advisor on a contingency basis. The rest of the sentence is redacted for grand jury. In 2008, Page met Alexander Bulatov, a Russian government official who worked at the Russian consulate in New York. Page later learned that Bulatov was a Russian intelligence officer. This, the rest of the sentence is redacted for the grand jury. In 2013, Viktor Podobny, another Russian intelligence officer working covertly in the United States under diplomatic cover, formed a relationship with Page. Podobny met Page at an energy symposium in New York City and began exchanging emails with him. Podobny and Page also met in person on multiple occasions during which Page offered his outlook on the future of the energy industry and provided documents to Podobny about the energy business. In a recorded conversation on April 8th, 2013, Podobny told another intelligence officer that Page was interested in business opportunities in Russia. In Podobny's words, Page got hooked on Gazprom thinking that if they have a project, he could rise up. Maybe he can. It's obvious that he wants to earn a lot of money. Podobny said that he had led Page on by feeding him empty promises, that Podobny would use his Russian business connections to help Page. Podobny told the other intelligence officer that his method of recruiting foreign sources was to promise them favors and then discard them once he obtained relevant information from them. In 2015, Podobny and two other Russian intelligence officers were charged with conspiracy to act as an unregistered agent of a foreign government. The criminal complaint detailed Podobny's interactions with and conversations about Page, who was identified only as male one. Based on the criminal complaint, complaints, based on the criminal complaints description of the interactions, Page was aware that he was the individual described as male one. Page later spoke with a Russian government official at the United Nations General Assembly and identified himself so that the official would understand he was male one from the Podobny complaint. Page told the official that he didn't do anything. The rest of the sentence is redacted for the grand jury. In interviews with the FBI before the office's opening, Page acknowledged that he understood that the individuals he had associated with were members of the Russian intelligence services, but he stated that he had only been provided immaterial non-public information to them and that he did not view this relationship as a back channel. Page told investigating agents that the more immaterial non-public information I gave them, the better for this country. 
B, origins of an early campaign work. In January 2016, Page began volunteering on an informal unpaid basis for the Trump campaign after Ed Cox, a state Republican Party official, introduced Page to Trump campaign officials. Page told the office that his goal in working on the on the campaign was to help candidate Trump improve relations with Russia. To that end, Page emailed campaign officials offering his thoughts on U.S.-Russia relations, prepared talking points and briefing memos on Russia and proposed that candidate Trump meet with President Vladimir Putin in Moscow. In communications with campaign officials, Page also repeatedly touted his high level contacts in Russia and his ability to forge connections between candidate Trump and senior Russian government officials. For example, on January 30th, 2016, Page sent an email to senior campaign officials stating that he had spent the past week in Europe and had been in discussions with some individuals with close ties to the Kremlin who recognized that Trump could have a game changing effect in bringing the end of the new cold world and bringing the end of the new cold war. The email stated that through his discussion, With these high-level contacts, Page believed that a direct meeting in Moscow between Mr. Trump and Putin could be arranged. Page closed the email by criticizing U.S. sanctions on Russia. On March 21st, 2016, candidate Trump... Oh, I need to go back to this. Page closed the email by criticizing U.S. sanctions on Russia. The next full sentence is redacted for the grand jury. On March 21st, 2016, is it going to be hard to go back and fix that? Okay. On March 21st, 2016, candidate Trump formally and publicly identified Page as a member of his foreign policy team to advise on Russia and the energy sector. Over the next several months, Page continued providing policy-related work, product, work. Page continued provided, oh my God. Over the next several months, Page continued providing policy-related work product to campaign officials. For example, in April 2016, Page provided feedback on an outline for a foreign policy speech that the candidate gave at the Mayflower Hotel. See Volume 1, Section 4A4. In May 2016, Page prepared an outline of an energy policy speech for the campaign and then traveled to Bismarck, North Dakota, to watch the candidate deliver the speech. Chief Policy Advisor Sam Clovis expressed appreciation for Page's work and praised his work to other campaign officials. C. Carter Page's July 2016 trip to Moscow. Page's affiliation with the Trump campaign took on a higher profile and drew the attention of Russian officials after the candidate named him a foreign policy advisor. As a result, in late April 2016, Page was invited to give a speech at the July 2016 commencement ceremony at the New Economic School in Moscow. The NES commencement ceremony generally featured high-profile speakers. For example, President Barack Obama delivered a commencement address to the school in 2009. NES officials told the office that the interest in inviting Page to speak at NES was based entirely on his status as a Trump campaign advisor who served as the candidate's Russia expert. Andrei Krikovich, 
an associate of pages and an assistant professor at the Higher School of Economics in Russia, recommended that NES rector Shlomo Weber invite Page to give the commencement address based on his connection to the Trump campaign. Denis Klementov, an employee of NES, said that when Russians learned of Page's involvement in the Trump campaign in March 2016, the excitement was palpable. Weber recalled that in summer 2016, there was substantial interest in the Trump campaign in Moscow, and he felt that bringing a member of the campaign to the school would be beneficial. Page was eager to accept the invitation to speak at NES, and he sought approval from Trump campaign officials to make the trip to Russia. On May 16, 2016, while that request was still under consideration, Page emailed Clovis, J.D. Gordon, and Walid Ferris and suggested that candidate Trump take his place speaking at the commencement ceremony in Moscow. On June 19, 2016, Page followed up again to request approval to speak at the NES event and to reiterate that NES would love to have Mr. Trump speak at this annual celebration in Page's place. Campaign manager Corey Lewandowski responded the same day saying, if you want to do this, it would be outside of your role with the DJT for president campaign. I am certain Mr. Trump will not be able to attend. In early July 2016, Page traveled to Russia for the NES events. On July 5th, 2016, Denis Klementov, copying his brother Dmitry Klementov, emailed Maria Zakharova, the director of the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Information and Press Department about Page's visit and his connection to the Trump campaign. Denis Klementov said in the email that he wanted to draw the Russian government's attention to Page's visit in Moscow. His message to Zakharova continued, Page is Trump's advisor on foreign policy. He is a known businessman, used to work in Russia. If you have any questions, I will be happy to help contact him. Dmitry Klementov then contacted Russian Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov about Page's visit to see if Peskov wanted to introduce Page to any Russian government officials. The following day, Peskov responded to what appears to have been the same Denis Klementov Zakharova email thread. Peskov wrote, I have read about Page. Specialists say that he is far from being the main one, so I better not initiate a meeting in the Kremlin. On July 7, 2016, Page delivered the first of his two speeches in Moscow at NES. In the speech, Page criticized the U.S. government's foreign policy toward Russia, stating that Washington and other Western capitals have impeded potentially have impeded potential progress through their often hypocritical focus on ideas such as democratization, inequality, corruption and regime change. On July 8, 2016, Page delivered a speech during the NES commencement. After Page delivered his commencement address, Russian Deputy Prime Minister and NES board member Arkady Dvorkovich spoke at the ceremony and stated that the sanctions the United States had imposed on Russia had hurt the NES. Page and Dvorkovich shook hands at the commencement ceremony, and Reber recalled that Dvorkovich made statements to Page about working together in the future. The next sentence is redacted for the grand jury. And so is the accompanying footnote. Page said that during his time in Moscow, he met with friends and associates he knew from when he lived in Russia, including Andrei Baranov, 
a former Gazprom employee who had become the head of investor relations at Rosneft, a Russian energy company. Page stated that he and Baranov talked about immaterial non-public information. Page believed he and Baranov discussed Rosneft president Igor Session, and he thought Baranov might have mentioned the possibility of a sale of a stake in Rosneft. Rosneft in passing. The possibility of a sale of a stake in Rosneft in passing. Page recalled mentioning his involvement in the Trump campaign with Baranov, although he did not remember details of the conversation. Page also met with individuals from Tatneft, a Russian energy company, to discuss possible business deals, including having Page work as a consultant. On July 8th, 2016, while he was in Moscow, Page emailed several campaign officials and stated he would send a readout soon regarding some incredible insights and outreach I've received from a few Russian legislators and senior members of the presidential administration here. On July 9th, 2016, Page emailed Clovis, writing in pertinent part, Russian Deputy Prime Minister and NES board member Arkady Dvorkovich also spoke before the event. In a private conversation, Dvorkovich expressed strong support for Mr. Trump and a desire to work together toward devising better solutions in response to the vast range of current international problems. Based on feedback from a diverse array of other sources close to the presidential administration, it was readily apparent that this sentiment is widely held at all levels of government. Despite these representations to the campaign, the rest of this paragraph, except for this last sentence, is redacted for the grand jury. The office was unable to obtain additional evidence or testimony about who Page may have met or communicated with in Moscow. Thus, Page's activities in Russia, as described in his emails with the campaign, were not fully explained. D, letter campaign work. I'm sorry. (laughs) D, later campaign work and removal from the campaign. In July 2016, after returning from Russia, Page traveled to the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. While there, Page met Russian ambassador to the United States, Sergei Kislyak. That interaction is described in Volume 1, Section 4A6. Page later emailed campaign officials with feedback he said he received from ambassadors he had met at the convention, and he wrote that Ambassador Kislyak was very worried about candidate Clinton's worldviews. The last sentence of this paragraph is redacted for the grand jury. Following the convention, Page's trip to Moscow and his advocacy for pro-Russia foreign policy drew the media's attention and began to generate substantial press coverage. The campaign responded by distancing itself from Page, describing him as an informal foreign policy advisor who did not speak for Mr. Trump or the campaign. On September 23, 2016, Yahoo News reported that U.S. intelligence officials were investigating whether Page had had opened private communications with senior Russian officials to discuss U.S. sanctions policy under a possible Trump administration. A campaign spokesman told Yahoo News that Page had no role in the campaign and that the campaign was not aware of any of his activities, past or present. On September 24, 2016, Page was formally removed from the campaign. Although Page had been removed from the campaign after the election, he sought a position in the Trump administration. 
On November 14th, 2016, he submitted an application to the transition team that inflated his credentials and experiences, stating that in his capacity as a Trump campaign foreign policy advisor, he had met with top world leaders and effectively responded to diplomatic outreach efforts from senior government officials in Asia, Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and the Americas. Page received no response from the transition team. When Page took a personal trip to Moscow in December 2016, he met again with at least one Russian government official. That interaction and a discussion of the December trip are set forth in Volume 1, Section 4, B6. 4. Dmitry Symes and the Center for the National Interest Members of the Trump campaign interacted on several occasions with the Center for the National Interest, CNI principally thought through its president and chief executive officer, Dmitry Symes. CNI is a think tank with expertise in and connections to the Russian government. Symes was born in the former Soviet Union and immigrated to the United States in the 1970s. In April 2016, candidate Trump delivered his first speech on foreign policy and national security at an event hosted by the National Interest, a publication affiliated with CNI. Then Senator Jeff Sessions and Russian Ambassador Kislyak both attended the event. And as a result, it gained some attention in relation to Sessions confirmation hearings to become attorney general. Sessions had various other contacts with CNI during the campaign period on foreign policy matters, including Russia. Jared Kushner also interacted with Symes about Russian issues during the campaign. The investigation did not identify evidence that the campaign passed or received any messages to or from the Russian government through CNI or Symes. A. CNI and Dmitry Symes connect with the Trump campaign. CNI is a Washington-based nonprofit organization that grew out of a center founded by former President Richard Nixon. CNI describes itself as a voice for strategic realism in U.S. foreign policy and publishes a bi-monthly foreign policy magazine, The National Interest. CNI is overseen by a board of directors and an, ad, and an advisory council that is largely honorary and whose members at the relevant time, including Sessions, who served as an advisor to candidate Trump on national security and foreign policy issues. Dimitri Symes is president and CEO of CNI and the publisher and CEO of The National Interest. Symes was born in the former Soviet Union, immigrated to the United States in the early 1970s, and joined CNI's predecessor after working at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. This is a little redundant. Symes personally has has many contacts with current and former Russian government officials, as does CNI collectively. As CNI stated when seeking a grant from the Carnegie Corporation in 2015, CNI has unparalleled access to Russian officials and politicians among Washington think tanks in part because CNI has arranged for U.S. delegations to visit Russia and for Russian delegations to visit the United States as part of so-called Track 2 diplomatic efforts. On on March 14, 2016, CNI board member Richard Plepler organized a luncheon for CNI and its honorary chairman, Henry Kissinger, at the Time Warner Building in New York. The idea behind the event was to generate interest in CNI's work and recruit new board members for CNI. Along with Symes, attendees at the event included Jared Kushner, son-in-law of candidate Trump. Kushner told the office that the event came at a time when the Trump campaign was having trouble securing support from experienced 
foreign policy professionals, and that as a result, he decided to seek Symes assistance during the March 14th event. Symes and Kushner spoke again on a March 24th, 2016 telephone call, three days after Trump had publicly named the team of foreign policy advisors that had been put together on short notice. On March 31st, 2016, Symes and Kushner had an in-person one-on-one meeting in Kushner's New York office. During that meeting, Symes told Kushner that the best way to handle foreign policy issues for the Trump campaign would be to organize an advisory group of experts to meet with candidate Trump and to de- and develop a foreign policy approach that was consistent with Trump's voice. Symes believed that Kushner was receptive to that suggestion. Symes also had contact with other individuals associated with the Trump campaign regarding the campaign's foreign policy positions. For example, on June 17, 2016, Symes sent J.D. Gordon an email with a memo to Senator Sessions that we discussed at our recent meeting and asked Gordon to both read it and share it with Sessions. The memorandum proposed building a small and carefully selected group of experts to assist Sessions with the campaign operating under the assumption that Hillary Clinton is very vulnerable on national security and foreign policy issues. The memorandum outlined key issues for the campaign, including a new beginning with Russia. B, national interest hosts a foreign policy speech at the Mayflower Hotel. During both their March 24th phone call and their March 31st in-person meeting, Symes and Kushner discussed the possibility of CNI hosting a foreign policy speech by candidate Trump. Following those conversations, Symes agreed that he and other, uh, others associated with CNI would provide behind-the-scenes input on the substance of the foreign policy speech and that CNI officials would coordinate the logistics of the speech with Sessions and his staff, including Sessions Chief of Staff Rick Dearborn. In mid-April 2016, Kushner put Symes in contact with senior policy advisor Stephen Miller, and forwarded to Symes an outline of the foreign policy speech that Miller had prepared. Symes sent back to the campaign bullet points with ideas for the speech that he had drafted with CNI Executive Director Paul Saunders and board member Richard Burke. Symes received subsequent draft outlines from Miller, and he and Saunders spoke to Miller by phone about substantive changes to the speech. It is not clear, however, whether CNI officials received an actual draft of the speech for comment. While Saunders recalled having received an actual draft, Symes did not, and the emails that CNI produced to the office do not contain such a draft. After board members expressed concern to Symes that CNI's hosting this speech could be perceived as an endorsement of a particular candidate, CNI decided to have its publication, The National Interest, serve as the host and to have the event at the National Press Club. Kushner later requested that the event be moved to the Mayflower Hotel, which was another venue that Symes had mentioned during early during initial discussions with the campaign in order to address concerns about security and capacity. On April 25th, 2016, Saunders booked event rooms at the Mayflower to host both the speech and a VIP reception that was to be held beforehand. Saunders understood that the reception at which invitees would have the chance to meet candidate Trump would be a small event. Saunders decided who would attend by looking at the list of CNI's invitees to the speech itself and then choosing a subset for the reception. CNI's invitees to the reception included Sessions and Kislyak. The week before the speech, Symes had informed Kislyak that he would be invited to the speech and that 
he would have the opportunity to meet Trump. When the when the pre speech <clears throat> when the pre speech reception began on April twenty seventh, a receiving line was quickly organized so that attendees could meet Trump. Sessions first stood next to Trump to introduce him to the members of Congress who were in attendance. After those members had been introduced, Symes stood next to Trump and introduced him to the CNI invitees in attendance, including Kislyak. Symes perceived the introduction to be positive and friendly, but thought it clear that Kislyak and Trump had just met for the first time. Kislyak also met Kushner during the pre-speech reception. The two shook hands and chatted for a minute or two, during which Kushner recalled Kislyak saying, we like what your candidate is saying. It's refreshing. Several public reports state that in addition to speaking to Kushner at the pre-speech reception, Kislyak also met or conversed with Sessions at that time. Sessions stated to investigators, however, that he did not remember any such conversation, nor did anyone else affiliated with CNI or the national interest specifically recall a conversation or meeting between Sessions and Kislyak at the pre-speech reception. It appeared that if a conversation occurred at the pre-speech reception, it was a brief one conducted in public view, similar to the exchange between Kushner and Kislyak. The office found no evidence that... Kislyak conversed with either Trump or Sessions after the speech or would have had the opportunity to do so. Symes, for example, did not recall seeing Kislyak at the post-speech luncheon, and the only witness who accounted for Sessions' whereabouts stated that Sessions may have spoken to the press after the event but then departed for Capitol Hill. Sanders, Saunders recalled, based in part on a food-related request he received from a campaign staff member, that Trump left the hotel a few minutes after the speech to go to the airport. C, Jeff Sessions' post-speech interactions with CNI. In the wake of Sessions' confirmation hearings as attorney general, questions arose about whether Sessions' campaign period interactions with CNI, apart from the Mayflower speech, included any additional meetings with Ambassador Kislyak or involved Russian-related matters. With respect to Kislyak contacts, on May 23rd, 2016, Sessions attended CNI's Distinguished Service Award Dinner at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. Sessions attended a pre-dinner reception and was seated at one of two head tables for the event. A seating chart prepared by Saunders indicates that Sessions was scheduled to be seated next to Kislyak, who appears to have responded to the invitation by indicating he would attend the event. Sessions, however, did not remember seeing, speaking with, or sitting next to Kislyak at the dinner. Although CNI board member Charles Boyd said he may not, he may have seen Kislyak at the dinner, Symes, Saunders, and Jacob Hilbrun, editor of the National Interest, all had no recollection of seeing Kislyak at the May 23rd event. Kislyak also does not appear in any of the photos from the event that the office obtained. In the, summer of, in the summer of 2016, CNI organized at least two dinners in Washington, D.C. for sessions to meet with experienced foreign policy professionals. The dinners included CNI-affiliated individuals such as Richard Burt and Zalmay Khalilzad, a former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan and Iraq, and the person who had introduced Trump before the April 27, 2016 foreign policy speech. Khalil Zaid also met with Sessions one-on-one separately from the dinners. At the dinners and in the meetings, 
The participants addressed U.S. relations with Russia, including how U.S. relations with NATO and European countries affected U.S. policy toward Russia. But the discussions were not exclusively focused on Russia. Khalil Zad, for example, recalled discussing discussing nation building and violent extremism with Sessions. In addition, Sessions asked Saunders of CNI to draft two memoranda not specific to Russia, one on Hillary Clinton's foreign policy shortcomings and another on Egypt. D, Jared Kushner's continuing contacts with Symes. Between the April 2016 speech at the Mayflower Hotel and the presidential election, Jared Kushner had periodic contacts with Symes. Those contacts consisted of both in-person meetings and phone conversations, which concerned how to address issues relating to Russia in the campaign and how to move forward with the advisory group of foreign policy experts that Symes had proposed. Symes recalled that he, not Kushner, initiated all conversations about Russia and that Kushner never asked him to set up back-channel conversations with Russians. According to Symes, after the Mayflower speech in late April, Symes raised the issue of Russian contacts with Kushner, advised that it was bad optics for the campaign to develop hidden Russian contacts, and told Kushner both that the campaign should not highlight Russia as an issue and should handle any contacts with Russians with care. Kushner generally provided a similar account of his interactions with Symes. Among the Kushner-Symes meetings was one held on August 17, 2016, at Symes' request in Kushner's New York office. The meeting was to address foreign policy advice that CNI was providing, and how to respond to the Clinton campaign's Russia-related attacks on candidate Trump. In advance of the meeting, Symes sent Kushner a Russia policy memo laying out what Mr. Trump may want to say about Russia. In a cover email transmitting that memo and a phone call to set up the meeting, Symes mentioned a well-documented story of highly questionable connections between Bill Clinton and the Russian government, parts of which, according to Symes, had even been discussed with the CIA and the FBI in the late 1990s and shared with the independent counsel at the end of the Clinton presidency. Kushner forwarded the email to senior Trump campaign officials, Stephen Miller, Paul Manafort, and Rick Gates with the note, suggestion only. Manafort subsequently forwarded the email to his assistant and scheduled a meeting with Symes. Manafort was on the verge of leaving the campaign by the time of the scheduled meeting with Symes, and Symes ended up meeting only with Kushner. During the August 17th meeting, Symes provided Kushner the Clinton-related information that he had promised. Symes told Kushner that this rest of the sentence is redacted for personal privacy. Symes claimed that he had received this information from former CIA and Reagan White House official Fritz Ermarth, who claimed to have learned it from U.S. intelligence sources, not from Russians. Symes perceived that Kushner did not find the information to be of interest or use to the campaign because it was, in Symes' words, old news. When interviewed by the office, Kushner stated that he believed that there was little chance of something new being revealed about the Clintons given their long career as public figures and that he never received from Symes information that could be operationalized for the Trump campaign. I want to read this footnote related to the Russia memo from Symes. This memorandum recommended downplaying Russia as a U.S. foreign policy priority at this time and suggested that some tend to exaggerate Putin's flaws. 
The memorandum also recommended approaching general Russian-related questions in the framework of how to work with Russia to advance important U.S. national interests and that a Trump administration not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. The memorandum did not discuss sanctions, but did address how to handle Ukraine-related questions, including questions about Russia's invasion and annexation of Crimea. Despite Kushner's reaction, Symes believed that he provided the same information at a small group meeting of foreign policy experts that CNI organized for sessions. Five, June 9th, 2016, meeting at Trump Tower. Now it's getting juicy. On June 9th, 2016, senior representatives of the Trump campaign met in Trump Tower with a Russian attorney expecting to receive derogatory information about Hillary Clinton from the Russian government. June 9th. The meeting was proposed to Donald Trump Jr. in an email from Robert Goldstone at the request of his then client, Emin Agalarov, the son of Russian real estate developer, Eris Agalarov. Goldstone relates to Trump Jr. that the crown prosecutor of Russia offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia as part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. Trump Jr. immediately responded that if it's what you say, I love it and arranged the meeting through a series of emails and telephone calls. Trump Jr. invited campaign chairman Paul Manafort and senior advisor Jared Kushner to attend the meeting and both attended. Members of the campaign discussed the meeting before it occurred and Michael Cohen recalled that Trump Jr. may have told candidate Trump about an upcoming meeting to receive adverse information about Clinton without linking the meeting to Russia. According to written answers submitted by President Trump, he has no recollection of learning of the meeting at that time, and the office found no documentary evidence showing that he was made aware of the meeting or its Russian connection before it occurred. That don't mean they didn't tell him. Anyway, the Russian attorney who spoke at the meeting, Natalia Veselnitskaya, I tried, had previously worked for the Russian government and maintained a relationship with that government throughout this period of time. She claimed that funds derived from illegal activities in Russia were provided to Hillary Clinton and other Democrats. Trump Jr. requested evidence to support those claims, but Veselnitskaya did not provide such information. She and her associates then turned to a critique of the origins of the Magnitsky Act, a 2012 statute that imposed financial and travel sanctions on Russian officials and that resulted in a retaliatory ban on adoptions of Russian children. Trump Jr. suggested that the issue could be revisited when and if candidate Trump was elected. After the election, Vissilniskaya made additional efforts to follow up on the meeting, but the Trump transition team did not engage. A, setting up the June 9th meeting. Outreach to Donald Trump Jr. Aras Agalarov is a Russian real estate developer with ties to Putin and other members of the Russian government, including Russia's prosecutor general, Yuri Chaika. Aras Agalarov is the president of the Crocus Group, a Russian enterprise that holds substantial Russian government construction contracts, and that, as discussed above in Volume 1, Section 4A1, worked with Trump in connection with the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Moscow and a potential Trump Moscow real estate project. 
The relationship continued over time as the parties pursued the Trump Moscow project in 2013 to 2014 and exchanged gifts and letters in 2016. For example, in April 2016, Trump responded to a letter from Aris Agalarov with a handwritten note. Aris Agalarov expressed interest in Trump's campaign, passed on congratulations for winning in the primary, and according to one email drafted by Goldstone, an offer of his support and that of many of his important Russian friends and colleagues, especially with reference to U.S.-Russian relations. On June 3rd, 2016, Emin Agalarov called Goldstone, Emin's then-publicist. Goldstone is a music and events promoter who represented Emin Agalarov from, from approximately late 2012 until late 2016. While representing Emin Agalarov, Goldstone facilitated the ongoing contact between the Trumps and the Agalarovs, including an invitation that Trump sent to Putin to attend the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Moscow. The next sentence is redacted for the grand jury. Goldstone understood this portion is redacted for the grand jury, a Russian political connection, and Emin Agalarov indicated that the attorney was a prosecutor. Goldstone recalled that the information that might interest the Trumps involved Hillary Clinton. The rest of this sentence is uh, redacted for the grand jury. The redacted for the grand jury mentioned by Emin Agalarov was Natalia Veselnitskaya. From approximately 1998 until 2001, Veselnitskaya worked as a prosecutor for the Central Administrative District of the Russian Prosecutor's Office, and she continued to perform government-related work and maintain ties to the Russian government following her departure. She lobbied and testified about the Magnitsky Act, which imposed financial sanctions and travel restrictions on Russian officials and which was named for a Russian tax specialist who exposed a fraud and later died in a Russian prison. Putin called the statute a purely political, unfriendly act, and Russia responded by barring a list of current and former U.S. officials from entering Russia and by halting the adoption of Russian children by U.S. citizens. Vesel Niskaya performed legal work for Denis Katsev, the son of Russian businessman Peter Katsev, and for his company Prevazon Holdings Limited, which was a defendant in a civil forfeiture action alleging the laundering of proceeds from the fraud exposed by Magnitsky. She also appears to have been involved in an April 2016 approach to a U.S. congressional delegation in Moscow offering confidential information from the prosecutor general of Russia about interactions between certain political forces in our two countries. Shortly after his June 3rd 3rd call with Emin Agalarov, Goldstone emailed Trump Jr. The email stated, good morning, Emin just called and asked me to contact you with something very interesting. The Crown Prosecutor of Russia met with his father, Eras, this morning, and in their meeting offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very useful to your your father. This is obviously very high-level and sensitive information, but is part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump, helped along by Eras and Emin. 
What do you think is the best way to handle this information? And would you be able to speak to Amen about it directly? I can also send this info to your father via Rona, but it is also ultra sensitive, but it is ultra sensitive. So wanted to send to you first best Rob Goldstone. Within minutes of this email, Trump Jr. responded, emailing back. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate that. I am on the road at the moment, but perhaps I just speak to him in first. Seems we have some time. And if it's what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. Could we do a call first thing next week when I am back? Goldstone conveyed Trump Jr.'s interest to Emin Agalarov, emailing that Trump Jr. wants to speak personally on the issue. On June 6, 2016, Emin Agalarov asked Goldstone if there was any news, and Goldstone explained that Trump Jr. was likely still traveling for the final elections, where Trump will be crowned the official nominee. On the same day, Goldstone again emailed Trump Jr. and asked when Trump Jr. was free to talk with Emin about this Hillary info. Trump Jr. asked if they could speak now, and Goldstone arranged a call between Trump Jr. and Emin Agalarov. On June 6th and June 7th, Trump Jr. and Emin Agalarov had multiple brief calls. Also on June 6th, 2016, Eris Agalarov called Ike Cavillades. Ike K. We're going to call him Ike K. Okay. And asked him to attend a meeting in New York with the Trump Organization. Now his name, Ike K is a Georgia-born, naturalized U.S. citizen who worked in the United States for the Crocus Group and reported to Eris Agalarov. Ike K told the office that in a second phone call on June 6, 2016, Eris Agalarov asked Ike K if he knew anything about the Magnitsky Act and Eris sent him a short synopsis for the meeting and Veselnitskaya's business card. According to Ike K, Eris Agalarov said the purpose of the meeting was to discuss the Magnitsky Act and he asked Ike K to translate. Two, awareness of the meeting within the campaign. On June 7th, Goldstone emailed Trump Jr. and said that Emin asked that I schedule a meeting with you and the Russian government attorney who was flying over from Moscow. Trump Jr. replied that Manafort, identified as the campaign boss, Jared Kushner and Trump Jr. would likely attend. Goldstone was surprised to learn that Trump Jr., Manafort and Kushner would attend. Ike K, the next portion is redacted for the grand jury, puzzled by the list of attendees and that he checked with one of Emin Agalarov's assistants, Roman Banayamanov, Jesus, who said that the purpose of the meeting was was for Veselnitskaya to convey negative information on Hillary Clinton. Banayamanov, however, stated that he did not recall having known or said that. Early on June 8th, 2016, Kushner emailed his assistant asking her to discuss a 3 p.m. meeting the following day with Trump Jr. Later that day, Trump Jr. forwarded the entirety of his email correspondence regarding the meeting with Goldstone to Manafort and Kushner under the subject line, forward, Russia, Clinton, private and confidential adding a note that the meeting got moved to four tomorrow at my offices. Kushner then sent his assistant a second email informing her that the meeting with Don Jr. is 4 p.m. now. Manafort responded, see you then, P. P is for Paul, by the way. Rick Gates, 
who was the deputy campaign chairman, stated during interviews with the office that in the days before June 9th, 2016, Trump Jr. announced at a regular morning meeting of senior campaign staff and Trump family members that he had a lead on negative information about the Clinton Foundation. These people are crazy. Okay, I'm back. Like, really crazy. It's getting juicy. Gates believed that Trump Jr. said the information was coming from a group in Kyrgyzstan and that he was introduced to the group by a friend. Gates recalled that the meeting was attended by Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Paul Manafort, Hope Hicks, and joining late Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. According to Gates, Manafort warned the group that the meeting likely would not yield vital information and they should be careful. Hicks denied any knowledge of the June 9th meeting before 2017, and Kushner did not recall if the planned June 9th meeting came up at all earlier that week. Michael Cohen recalled being in Donald J. Trump's office on June 6th or 7th when Trump Jr. told his father that a meeting to obtain adverse information about Clinton was going forward. Cohen did not recall Trump Jr. stating that the meeting was connected to Russia. From the tenor of the conversation, Cohen believed that Trump Jr. had previously discussed the meeting with his father, although Cohen was not involved in any such conversation. In an interview with the Senate Judiciary Committee, however, Trump Jr. stated that he did not inform his father about the emails or the upcoming meeting. Similarly, neither Manafort nor Kushner recalled anything, anyone informing candidate Trump of the meeting including Trump Jr. President Trump has stated to this office in written answers to questions that he has no recollection of learning at that time that his son Manafort or Kushner was considering participating in a meeting in June 2016 concerning potentially negative information about Hillary Clinton. Uh, I'm going to read this footnote. Written responses of Donald J. Trump, November 20th, 2018 at a response response to questions one parts A through C. We considered whether one sequence of events suggested that candidate Trump had contemporaneous knowledge of the June 9th meeting. On June 7, 2016, Trump announced his intention to give a major speech, probably Monday of next week, which would have been June 13th, about all of the things that have taken place with the Clintons. See, for example, Philip Bump, what we know about the Trump Tower meeting, Washington Post, August 7th, 2018. Following the June 9th meeting, Trump changed the subject of his planned speech to national security. But the office did not find evidence that the original idea for the speech was connected to the anticipated June 9th meeting or that the change of topic was attributable to the failure of the meeting to produce concrete evidence about Clinton. Other events, such as the Pulse nightclub shooting on June 12th, could well have caused the change. The president's written answers to our question state that the speech's focus was altered in light of the Pulse nightclub shooting. See written responses. As for the original topic of the June 13th speech, Trump has said that he expected to give a speech referencing the publicly available negative information about the Clintons and that the draft of the speech prepared by campaign staff was based on publicly available material, including in particular information from the book Clinton Cash by Peter Schweitzer. Written responses. In a later June 22nd speech, Trump did speak extensively about allegations that Clinton was corrupt, drawing from the Clinton Cash book. See full transcript, 
Donald Trump NYC speech on stakes of the election. The events of June 9, 2016, arrangements for the meeting. Vessel Niskaya was in New York on June 9, 2016 for appellate proceedings in the Previzon civil forfeiture litigation. That day, Vessel Niskaya called Renat Akhmetshin, a Soviet-born U.S. lobbyist, his portion is striked for purposes of the grand jury, redacted, and when she learned that he was in New York, invited him to lunch. Akhmetshin told the office that he had worked on issues relating to the Magnitsky Act and had worked on the Prevazon litigation. Ike K. and Anatoly Samorshinov, a Russian-born translator who had assisted Veselnitskaya with Magnitsky-related lobbying in the Prevazon case, also attended the lunch. This portion is redacted for the grand jury. Veselnitskaya said she was meeting, portion redacted for the grand jury, and asked Akhmetshin what she should tell him. According to several participants in the lunch, Veselnitskaya showed Akhmetshin a document alleging financial misconduct by Bill Browder and the Ziff brothers, Americans with business in Russia, and those individuals subsequently making political donations to the DNC. The next sentence is redacted for the grand jury. The group then went to Trump Tower for the meeting. Conduct of the meeting. Trump Jr., Manafort, and Kushner participated on the Trump side, while Ike K., Samorchonov, Akhmetshin, and Goldstone attended with Veselnitskaya. The office spoke to every participant except Veselnitskaya and Trump Jr., the latter of whom declined to be voluntarily interviewed by the office. This next sentence is redacted for the grand jury. The meeting lasted approximately 20 minutes. This next sentence is redacted for the grand jury. Goldstone recalled that Trump Jr. invited Veselnitskaya to begin, but did not say anything about the subject of the meeting. Participants agreed that Veselnitskaya stated that the Ziv brothers had broken Russian laws and had donated their profits to the DNC or the Clinton campaign. I just want to point out that All of these notes related to this paragraph are redacted for the grand jury. She asserted that the Ziff brothers had engaged in tax evasion and money laundering in both the United States and Russia. Next sentence, redacted for the grand jury. According to Akhmetshin, Trump Jr. asked follow-up questions about how the alleged payments could be tied specifically to the Clinton campaign, but Veselnitskaya indicated that she could not trace the money once it entered the United States. I.K. similarly recalled that Trump Jr. asked what they have on Clinton and Kushner became aggravated and asked, what are we doing here? Akhmetshin then spoke about U.S. sanctions imposed under the Magnitsky Act and Russia's response prohibiting U.S. adoption of Russian children. Several participants recalled that Trump Jr. commented that Trump is a private citizen and there was nothing they could do at that time. Trump Jr. also said that they could revisit the issue if and when they were in government. Notes that Manafort took on his phone phone reflect the general flow of the conversation, although not all of its details. At some point in the meeting, Kushner sent an iMessage to Manafort stating, waste of time, followed immediately by two separate emails to assistants at Kushner companies with requests that they call him to give him an excuse to leave. Samo Chornov recalled that Kushner departed the meeting before it had concluded. Veselnitskaya recalled the same when interviewed by the press. 
in July 2017. Best known as press interviews and written statements to Congress differ materially from other accounts. In a July 2017 press interview, Veselnitskaya claimed that she had no connection to the Russian government and had not referred to any derogatory information concerning the Clinton campaign when she met with Trump campaign officials. Veselnitskaya's November 2017 written submission to the Senate Judiciary Committee stated that the purpose of the Judine meeting was not to connect with the Trump campaign, but rather to have a private meeting with Donald Trump Jr., a friend of my good acquaintance's son, on the matter of assisting me or my colleagues in informing, con- in informing the Congress members as to the criminal nature of manipulation and interference with the legislative activities of the U.S. Congress. In other words, Vesunaskaya claimed her focus was on Congress and not the campaign. No witness, however, recalled any reference to Congress during the meeting. Vesunaskaya also maintained that she attended the meeting as a lawyer of Dennis Katsev, the previously mentioned owner of Prevazon Holdings, but she did not introduce herself in this capacity. In a July 2017 television interview, Trump Jr. stated that while he had no way to gauge the reliability, credibility, or accuracy of what Goldstone had stated was the purpose of the meeting, if someone has information on our opponent, opponent, maybe this is something I should hear them out. Trump Jr. further stated in September 2017 congressional testimony that he thought he should listen to what Rob and his colleagues had to say. Depending on what, if any, information was provided, Trump Jr. stated he could then consult with counsel to make any informed decision as to whether to give it any further consideration. After the June 9th meeting concluded, Goldstone apologized to Trump Jr., According to Goldstone, he told Trump Jr. this is is redacted for the grand jury and told Iman Agalarov in a phone call that the meeting was about adoption. This next sentence is um, redacted for the grand jury. Eris Agalarov asked Ike K to report in after the meeting, but before Ike K could call, Eris Agalarov called him. With Veselnitskaya next to him, Ike K reported that the meeting had gone well, but he later told Eris Agalarov that the meeting about the Magnitsky Act had been a waste of time because it was not with lawyers and they were preaching to the wrong crowd. Post-June 9th events. Veselnitskaya and Eris Agalarov made at least two unsuccessful attempts after the election to meet with Trump representatives to convey similar information about Browder and the Magnitsky Act. On November 23, 2016, Ike K emailed Goldstone about setting up another meeting with T people and sent a document bearing allegations similar to those conveyed on June 9th. Ike K followed up with Goldstone stating that Mr. A, which Goldstone understood to mean Eris Agalarov, called to ask about the meeting. Goldstone emailed the document to Rona Graf saying that Eris Agalarov had asked me to pass on this document in the hope it can be passed on to the appropriate team. If needed, a lawyer representing the case is in New York currently and happy to meet with any member of his transition team. According to Goldstone, around January 2017, Ike K contacted him again to set up another meeting, but Goldstone did not make the request. The investigation did not identify evidence of the transition team following up. 
Participants in the June 9th, 2016 meeting began receiving inquiries from attorneys representing the Trump organization, stating in approximately starting in approximately June 2017. On approximately June 2nd, 2017, Goldstone spoke with Alan Garten, general counsel of the Trump organization, about his participation in the June 9th meeting. The same day, Goldstone emailed Veselnitskaya's name to Garten identifying her as the woman who was the attorney who spoke at the meeting from Moscow. Later in June 2017, Goldstone participated in a lengthier call with Garten and Alan Futterfoss. What is up with these last names? Outside counsel for the Trump organization and subsequently personal counsel for Trump Jr. On June 27, 2017, Goldstone emailed Emin Agalarov with the subject Trump attorneys and stated that he was interviewed by attorneys about the June 9th meeting who were concerned because it links Don Jr. to officials from Russia, which he has always denied meeting. Goldstone stressed that he did he, that he did say at the time this was an awful idea and a terrible meeting. Amina Galarov sent a screenshot of the message to Ike K., The June 9th meeting became public in July 2017. In a July 9th, 2017 text message to Imena Galarov, Goldstone wrote, I made sure I kept you and your father out of this story. And if contacted, I can do a dance and keep you out of it. Goldstone added, FBI now investigating. And I hope this favor was worth for your dad. It could blow up. On July 12th, 2017, Imen Agalarov complained to IK that his father, Eras, never listened to him and that their relationship with Mr. T has been thrown down the drain. The next month, Goldstone commented to Imen Agalarov about the volume of publicity the June 9th meeting had generated, stating that his reputation was basically destroyed by this dumb meeting which your father insisted on, even though Ike and me told him would be bad news and not to do. Goldstone added, I am not able to respond out of courtesy to you and your father. So I'm painted as some mysterious link to Putin. After public reporting on the June 9th meeting began, representatives from the Trump organization again reached out to participants. On July 10th, 2017, Footerfast sent Goldstone an email with the proposed statement for Goldstone to issue, which read, As the person who arranged the meeting, I can definitely state that the statements I have read by Donald Trump Jr. are 100% accurate. The meeting was a complete waste of time, and Don was never told Ms. Veselnitskaya's name prior to the meeting. Ms. Veselnitskaya mostly talked about the Magnitsky Act and Russian adoption laws, and the meeting lasted 20 to 30 minutes at most. There was never any follow-up, and nothing ever came of the meeting. This next sentence starts with a redaction for the grand jury. The statement drafted by Trump organization representatives was, this is also redacted for the grand jury. He proposed a different statement asserting that he had been asked by his client in Moscow, Emin Agalarov, to facilitate a meeting between a Russian attorney, Natalia Veselnitskaya, and Donald Trump Jr. The lawyer had apparently stated that she had some information regarding funding to the DNC from Russia, which she believed Mr. Trump Jr. might find interesting. Goldstone never released either statement. 
On the Russian end, there were also communications about what participants should say about the June 9th meeting. Specifically, the organization that hired Samokhtronov, an an anti-Magnitsky Act group controlled by Veselnitskaya and the owner of Prevazon, offered to pay $90,000 of Samokhtronov's legal fees. At Veselnitskaya's request, the organization sent Samokhtronov a transcript of a Veselnitskaya press interview, and Samuel Chernov understood that the organization would pay his legal fees only if he made statements consistent with Veselnitskaya's. Samuel Chernov declined, telling the office that he did not want to perjure himself. The individual who conveyed Veselnitskaya's request to Samuel Chernov stated that he did not expressly condition payment on following Veselnitskaya's answers, but in hindsight recognized that by sending the transcript, Samachernov could have interpreted the offer of assistance to be conditioned on his not contradicting Veselnitskaya's account. Volume 2, Section 2G discusses interactions between President Trump, Trump Jr., and others in June and July 2017 regarding the June 9th meeting. Guys have to listen to Volume 2. Events at the Republican National Convention. Trump campaign officials met with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak, during the week of the Republican National Convention, the evidence indicates that those interactions were brief and non-substantive. During platform committee meetings immediately before the convention, J.D. Gordon, a senior campaign advisor on policy and national security, diluted a proposed amendment to the Republican Party platform expressing support for providing lethal assistance to Ukraine in response to Russian aggression. Gordon requested that platform committee personnel revise the proposed amendment to state that only appropriate assistance be provided to Ukraine. The original sponsor of the lethal assistance amendment stated that Gordon told her, the sponsor, that he was on the phone with candidate Trump in connection with his request to dilute the language. Gordon denied making that statement to the sponsor, although he acknowledged it was possible he mentioned having having previously spoken to the candidate about the subject matter. The investigation did not establish that Gordon spoke to or was directed by the candidate to make that proposal. Gordon said that he sought the change because he believed the proposed language was inconsistent with Trump's position on Ukraine. Ambassador Kislyak's encounters with Senator Sessions and J.D. Gordon the week of the RNC. In July 2016, Senator Sessions and Gordon spoke at the Global Partners in Diplomacy event, a conference co-sponsored by the State Department and the Heritage Foundation held in Cleveland, Ohio, the same week as the Republican National Convention. RNC or convention going forward. Approximately 80 foreign ambassadors to the United States, including Kislyak, were invited to the conference. On July 20th, 2016, Gordon and Sessions delivered their speeches at the conference. In his speech, Gordon stated in pertinent part that the United States should have better relations with Russia. During Sessions' speech, he took questions from the audience, one of which may have been asked by Kislyak. When the speech is concluded, several ambassadors lined up to greet the speakers. Gordon shook hands with Kislyak and reiterated that he had meant what he said in the speech about improving U.S.-Russia relations. Sessions separately spoke with between six and 12 ambassadors, including Kislyak. 
Although Sessions stated during interviews with the office that he had no specific recollection of what he discussed with Kislyak, he believed that the two spoke for only a few minutes and that they would have exchanged pleasantries and said some things about U.S.-Russia relations. Later that evening, Gordon attended a reception as part of that conference. Gordon ran into Kislyak as the two prepared plates of food, and they decided to sit at the same table to eat. They were joined at the table by the ambassadors from Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan and by Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. As they ate, Gordon and Kislyak talked for what Gordon estimated to have been three to five minutes, during which Gordon again mentioned that he meant what he said in his speech about improving U.S.-Russian relations. Change to Republican Party Platform. In preparation for the 2016 convention, foreign policy advisors to the Trump campaign working with the Republican National Committee reviewed the 2012 convention's foreign policy platform to identify divergence between the earlier platform and candidate Trump's positions. The campaign team discussed toning down language from the 2012 platform that identified Russia as the country's number one threat. Given the candidate's belief that there needed to be better U.S. relations with Russia, the RNC platform committee sent the 2016 draft platform to the National Security and Defense Platform Subcommittee on July 10, 2016, the evening before its first meeting to propose amendments. Although only delegates could participate in formal discussions and vote on the platform, the Trump campaign could request changes and members of the Trump campaign attended committee meetings. John Mashburn, the campaign's policy director helped oversee the campaign's involvement in the platform committee meetings. He told the office that he directed campaign staff at the convention, including J.D. Gordon, to take a hands-off approach and only to challenge platform planks if they directly, if they directly contradicted Trump's wishes. On July 11, 2016, Delegate Diane Denman submitted a proposed platform amendment that included provision of armed support for Ukraine. The amendment described Russia's ongoing military aggression in Ukraine and announced support for maintaining and, if warranted, increasing sanctions against Russia until Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity are fully restored and for providing lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine's armed forces and greater coordination with NATO on defense planning. Gordon reviewed the proposed platform changes, including Denman's. Gordon stated that he flagged this amendment because of Trump's stated position on Ukraine, which Gordon personally heard the candidates say at the March 31st foreign policy meeting, namely that the Europeans should take primary responsibility for any assistance to Ukraine, that there should be improved U.S.-Russia relations, and that he did not want to start World War III over that region. Gordon told the office, that Trump's statements on the campaign trail following the March meeting underscored those positions to the point where Gordon felt obliged to object to the proposed platform change and seek its dilution. On July 11, 2016, at a meeting of the National Security and Defense Platform Subcommittee, Denman offered her amendment. Gordon and another campaign staffer, Matt Miller, approached a committee co-chair and ask him to table the amendment to permit further discussion. Gordon's concern with the amendment was the language about providing lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine. 
Miller did not have any independent basis to believe that this language contradicted Trump's views and relied on Gordon's recollection of the candidate's views. According to Denman, she spoke with Gordon and Matt Miller, and they told her that they had to clear the language and that Gordon was talking to New York. Denman told others that she was asked by the two Trump campaign staffers to strike lethal defense weapons from the proposal, but that she refused. Denman recalled Gordon saying that he was on the phone with candidate Trump, but she was skeptical whether that was true. Gordon denied having told Denman that he was on the phone with Trump, although he acknowledged it was possible that he mentioned having previously spoken to the candidate about the subject matter. Gordon's phone call records, Gordon's phone records reveal a call to Sessions office in Washington that afternoon, but do not include calls directly to a number associated with Trump. And according to the president's written answers to the office's questions, he does not recall being involved in the change in language of the platform amendment. Gordon stated that he tried to reach Rick Dearborn, a senior foreign policy advisor, and Mashburn, the campaign policy director. Gordon stated that he connected with both of them. He could not recall if by phone or in person and apprised them of the language he took issue with in the proposed amendment. Gordon recalled no objection by either Dearborn or Mashburn and that all three campaign advisors supported the alternative formulation, appropriate assistance. Dearborn recalled Gordon warning. Okay, wait. Dearborn recalled Gordon warning them about the amendment, but not weighing in because Gordon was more familiar with the campaign's foreign policy stance. Mashburn stated that Gordon reached him and he told Gordon that Trump had not taken a stance on the issue and that the campaign should not intervene. When the amendment came up again in the committee's proceedings, the subcommittee changed the amendment by striking the lethal defense weapons language and replacing it with appropriate assistance. Gordon stated that he and the subcommittee co-chair ultimately agreed to replace the language about armed assistance with appropriate assistance. The subcommittee accordingly approved Demon's amendment, but with the term appropriate assistance. Gordon stated that to his recollection, this was the only change sought by the campaign. Sam Clovis, the campaign's national co-chair and chief policy advisor, stated he was surprised by the change and did not believe it was in line with Trump's stance. Mashburn stated that when he saw the word appropriate assistance, he believed that Gordon had violated Mashburn's directive not to intervene. Seven, post-convention contacts with Kislyak. Ambassador Kislyak continued his efforts to interact with campaign officials with responsibility for the foreign policy portfolio. Among them, Sessions and Gordon in the weeks after the convention the office did not identify evidence in those interactions of coordination between the campaign and the Russian government. Ambassador Kislyak invites J.D. Gordon to breakfast at the ambassador's residence. On August 3, 2016, an official from the embassy of the Russian Federation in the United States wrote to Gordon on behalf of Ambassador Kislyak, inviting Gordon to have breakfast or tea with the ambassador at his residence in Washington, D.C. the following week. Gordon responded five days later to decline the invitation. He wrote, these days are not optimal for us. We are busily knocking down a constant stream of false media stories while also preparing for the first debate with HRC. 
Hope to take a rain check for another time when things quiet down a bit. Please pass along my regards to the ambassador. The investigation did not identify evidence that Gordon made any other arrangements to meet or met with Kislyak after this email. B, Senator Sessions' September 2016 meeting with Ambassador Kislyak. Also in August 2016, a representative of the Russian embassy contacted Sessions' Senate office about setting up a meeting with Kislyak. At the time, Sessions was a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and would meet with foreign officials in that capacity. But Sessions' staff reported and Sessions himself acknowledged that meeting requests from ambassadors increased substantially in 2016 as Sessions assumed a prominent role in the Trump campaign and his name was mentioned for potential cabinet level positions in a future Trump administration. On September 8th, 2016, Sessions met with Kislyak in his Senate office. Sessions said that he believed he was doing the campaign a service by meeting with foreign ambassadors, including Kislyak. He was accompanied in the meeting by at least two of his Senate staff, Sandra Luff, his legislative director, and Pete Landrum, who handled military affairs. The meeting lasted less than 30 minutes. Sessions voiced concerns about Russia's sale of a missile defense system to Iran, Russian planes buzzing U.S. military assets in the Middle East, and Russian aggression in emerging democracies such as Ukraine and Moldova. Kislyak offered explanations on these issues and complained about NATO land forces in former Soviet bloc countries that border Russia. Landrum recalled that Kislyak referred to the presidential campaign as an interesting campaign. And Sessions also recalled Kislyak saying that the Russian government was receptive to the overtures Trump had laid out during his campaign. None of the attendees, though, remembered any discussion of Russian election interference or any request that Sessions convey information from the Russian government to the Trump campaign. During the meeting, Kislyak invited Sessions to further discuss U.S.-Russia relations with him over a meal at the ambassador's residence. Sessions was noncommittal when Kislyak extended the invitation. After the meeting ended, Luff advised Sessions against accepting the one-on-one meeting with Kislyak, whom she assumed to be an old-school KGB guy. Neither Luff nor Landrum recalled that Sessions followed up on the invitation or made any further effort to dine or meet with Kislyak before the November 2016 election. Sessions and Landrum recalled that after the election, some efforts were made to arrange a meeting between Sessions and Kislyak. According to Sessions, the request came through CNI and would have involved a meeting between Sessions and Kislyak, two other ambassadors, and the governor of Alabama. Sessions, however, was in New York on the day of the anticipated meetings and was unable to attend. The investigation did not identify evidence that the two men met at any point after their September 8th meeting. Paul Manafort served on the Trump campaign, including a period as campaign chairman from March to August 2016. Manafort had connections to Russia through his prior work for Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, and later through his work for a pro-Russian regime in Ukraine. Manafort stayed in touch with these contacts during the campaign period through Konstantin Kalimnik, 
a longtime Manafort employee who previously ran Manafort's office in Kiev and who the FBI assesses to have ties to Russian intelligence. Manafort instructed Rick Gates, his, his deputy on the campaign and a longtime employee, to provide Kalimnik with updates on the Trump campaign, including internal polling data, although Manafort claims not to recall that specific instruction. Manafort expected Kalimnik to share that information with others in Ukraine and with Deripaska. Gates periodically sent such polling data to Kalimnik during the campaign. Manafort also twice met Kalimnik in the United States during the campaign period and conveyed campaign information. The second meeting took place on August 2nd, 2016 in New York City. Kalimnik requested the meeting to deliver in person a message from former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, who was then living in Russia. The message was about a peace plan for Ukraine that Manafort has since acknowledged was a backdoor means for Russia to control eastern Ukraine. Several months later, after the presidential election, Kalimnik wrote an email to Manafort expressing the view, which Manafort later said he shared, that the planned success would require U.S. support to succeed. All that is required to start the process is a very minor wink or slight push from Donald Trump. The email also stated that if Manafort were designed, uh, the email also stated that if Manafort were designated as the U.S. representative and started the process, Yanukovych would ensure his reception in Russia at the very top level. Manafort communicated with Kalimnik about peace plans for Ukraine on at least four occasions after their first discussion of the topic on August 2nd. December 2016, the Kalimnik email described above January 2017, February 2017, and again in the spring of 2018. The office reviewed numerous Manafort email and text communications and asked President Trump about the plan in written questions. The investigation did not uncover evidence of Manafort's passing along information about Ukrainian peace plans to the candidate or anyone else in the campaign or the administration. The office was not, however, able to gain access to all of Manafort's electronic communications. In some instances, messages were sent using encryption applications. And while Manafort denied that he spoke to members of the Trump campaign or the new administration about the peace plan, he lied to the office and the grand jury about the peace plan and his meetings with Kalimnik and his unreliability on this subject was among the reasons that that the district judge found that he breached his cooperation agreement. I want to read this footnote about Paul Manafort. Uh, Footnote 842 on page 130. Manafort made several false statements during debriefings. Based on that conduct, the office determined that Manafort had breached his plea agreement and could not be a cooperative witness. The judge presiding in Manafort's D.C. criminal case found by a preponderance of the evidence that Manafort intentionally made multiple false statements to the FBI, the office, and the grand jury concerning his interactions and communications with Kalimnik and concerning two other issues. Although the report refers at times to Manafort's statements, it does so only when those statements are sufficiently corroborated to be trustworthy. To identify issues on which Manafort's untruthful responses may themselves be of evidentiary value or to provide Manafort's explanations for certain events, even when we were unable to determine whether that explanation was credible. Man, that's a lot. 
The office cannot reliably determine Manafort's purpose in sharing internal polling data with Kalimnik during the campaign period. Manafort, this portion is redacted for a grand jury, did not see a downside to sharing campaign information and told Gates that his role in the campaign would be good for business and potentially a way to be made whole for work he previously completed in the Ukraine. As to Deripaska, Manafort claimed that by sharing campaign information with him, Deripaska might see value in their relationship and resolve a disagreement, a reference to one or more outstanding lawsuits. Because of questions about Manafort's credibility and our limited ability to gather evidence on what happened to the polling data after it was sent to Kalimnik, the office could not assess what Kalimnik or others he may have given it to did with it. The office did not identify evidence of a connection between Manafort sharing polling data and Russia's interference in the election, which had already been reported by U.S. media outlets at the time of the August 2nd meeting. The investigation did not establish that Manafort otherwise coordinated with the Russian government on its election interference efforts. A. Paul Manafort's ties to Russia and Ukraine. Manafort's Russian contacts during the campaign and transition period stemmed from his consulting work for Deripaska from approximately 2005 to 2009 and his separate political consulting work in Ukraine from 2005 to 2015, including through his company DMP International LLC, DMI. Kalimnik worked for Manafort in Kiev during this entire period and continued to communicate with Manafort through at least June 2018. Kalimnik, who speaks and writes Ukrainian and Russian, facilitated many of Manafort's communications with Deripaska and Ukrainian oligarchs. One, Oleg Deripaska Consulting Work. In approximately 2005, Manafort began working for Deripaska, a Russian oligarch who has a global empire involving aluminum and power companies and who is closely aligned with Vladimir Putin. A memorandum describing work that Manafort performed for Deripaska in 2005 regarding the post-Soviet republics referenced the need to brief the Kremlin and the benefits that the work could confer on the Putin government. Gates described the work Manafort did for Deripaska as political risk insurance and explained that Deripaska used Manafort to install friendly political officials in countries where Deripaska had business interests. Manafort's company earned tens of millions of dollars from its work for Deripaska and was loaned millions of dollars by Deripaska as well. In 2007, Deripaska invested through another entity, Empirical's Emerging Market Partners, LP, Pericles, an investment fund created by Manafort and former Manafort business partner, Richard Davis. The Pericles fund was established to pursue investments in Eastern Europe. Deripaska was the sole investor. Gates stated in interviews with the office that the venture led to a deterioration of the relationship between Manafort and Deripaska. In particular, when the fund failed, litigation between Manafort and Deripaska ensued. Gates stated that by 2009, Manafort's business relationship with Deripaska had dried up. According to Gates, various interactions with Deripaska and his intermediaries over the past few years have involved trying to resolve the legal dispute. As described below in 2016, Manafort, Gates, Kalimnik, and others engaged in efforts to revive the Deripaska relationship and resolved the litigation. Political consulting work. Through Deripaska, Manafort was introduced to Renat Akhmatov, 
a Ukrainian oligarch who hired Manafort as a political consultant. In 2005, Akhmatov hired Manafort to engage in political work supporting the Party of Regions, a political party in Ukraine that was generally understood to align with Russia. Manafort assisted the Party of Regions in regaining power, and its candidate, Viktor Yanukovych, won the presidency in 2010. Manafort became a close and trusted political advisor to Yanukovych during his time as president of Ukraine. Yanukovych served in that role until 2014 when he fled to Russia amidst popular protests. Three, Konstantin Kalimnik. Kalimnik is a Russian national who has lived in both Russia and Ukraine and was a longtime Manafort employee. Kalimnik had direct and close access to Yanukovych and his senior entourage, and he facilitated communications between Manafort and his clients, including Yanukovych and multiple Ukrainian oligarchs. Kalimnik also maintained a relationship with Deripaska's deputy, Viktor Boyarkin, a Russian national who previously served in defense in the defense attache office of the Russian embassy to the United States. Manafort told the office that he did not believe Kalimnik was working as a Russian spy. The FBI, however, assesses that Kalimnik has ties to Russian intelligence. Several pieces of the office's evidence including witness interviews and emails obtained through court-authorized search warrants support that assessment. Kalimnik was born on April 27, 1970. Oh my God, I can't say this. Oh my God. Let me count how many letters this is. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And it ain't that many vowels. Dnipropetrovsk Oblast. That is so crazy. In Dnipropetrovsk Oblast. Yeah, he was born somewhere I can't pronounce, then of the Soviet Union, and attended the Military Institute of the Ministry of Defense from 1987 until 1992. Sam Patton, a business partner to Kalimnik, stated that Kalimnik told him that he was a translator in the Russian army for seven years and that he later worked in the Russian armament industry selling arms and military equipment. U.S. government records reveal that Kalimnik obtained a visa to travel to the United States with a Russian diplomatic passport in 1997. Kalimnik worked for the International Republican Institute's IRA Moscow office, where he did translation work and general office management from 1998 to 2005. While another official recalled the incident differently, one former associate of Kalimnik's at IRA told the FBI that Kalimnik was fired from his post because his links to Russian intelligence were too strong. The same individual stated that it was well known at IRA that Kalimnik had links to the Russian government. Jonathan Hawker, a British national who was a public relations consultant at FTI Consulting, worked with DMI on a public relations campaign for Yanukovych. And after Hawker's work for DMI ended, Kalimnik contacted Hawker about working for a Russian government entity on a public relations project that would promote in Western Ukrainian media Russia's position on its 2014 invasion of Crimea. Gates suspected that Kalimnik was a spy, a view that he shared with Manafort, Hawker, and Alexander Vanderzwan, 
an attorney who had worked with DMI on a report for the Ukrainian Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, the next line is redacted for an investigative technique. B, contacts during Paul Manafort's time with the Trump campaign. Paul Manafort joins the campaign. Manafort served on the Trump campaign from late March to August 19, 2016. On March 29, 2016, the campaign announced that Manafort would serve as the campaign's convention manager. On May 19, 2016, Manafort was promoted to campaign chairman and chief strategist. And Gates, who had been assisting Manafort on the campaign, was appointed deputy campaign chairman. Thomas Barrick, Thomas Barrick and Roger Stone both recommended Manafort to candidate Trump. In early 2016, at Manafort's request, Barrick suggested to Trump that Manafort join the campaign to manage the Republican convention. Stone had worked with Manafort from Stone had worked with Manafort from approximately 1980 until the mid 1990s through various consulting and lobbying firms. Manafort met Trump in 1982 when Trump hired the black Manafort, Stone and Kelly lobbying firm. Over the years, Manafort saw Trump at political and social events in New York City and at Stone's wedding. And Trump requested VIP status at the 1988 and 1996 Republican conventions worked by Manafort. According to Gates, in March 2016, Manafort traveled to Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida to meet with Trump. Trump hired him at that time. Manafort agreed, Manafort agreed to work on the campaign without pay. Manafort had no meaningful income at this point in time, but resuscitating his domestic political campaign career could be financially beneficial in the future. Gates reported that Manafort intended if Trump won the presidency to remain outside the administration and monetize his relationship with the administration. Two, Paul Manafort's campaign period contacts. Immediately upon joining the campaign, Manafort directed Gates to prepare for his review. Separate memoranda addressed to Deripaska, Akhmatov, Serhii Lavoychkin, and Boris Kolesnikov the last three being Ukrainian oligarchs who were senior opposition bloc officials. The memoranda described Manafort's appointment to the Trump campaign and indicated his willingness to consult on Ukrainian politics in the future. On March 30th, 2016, Gates emailed the memoranda and a press release announcing Manafort's appointment to Kalimnik for translation and dissemination. Manafort later followed up with Kalimnik to ensure his messages has been, had been delivered, emailed, emailing on April 11, 2016, to ask whether Kalimnik had shown our friends the media coverage of his new role. Kalimnik replied, absolutely, every article. Manafort further asked, how do we get, how do we use, how do we use to get whole? Has Ovid Oleg Vladimirovich Deripaska operation team? Kalimnik wrote back the same day, yes, I've been sending everything to Victor Boyarkin, Deripaska's deputy, who has been forwarding the coverage directly to OBD. Gates reported, and Gates reported that Manafort said that being hired on the campaign would be good for business and increase the likelihood that Manafort would be would be paid the approximately $2 million he was owed for previous political consulting work in Ukraine. 
Gates also explained to the office that Manafort thought his role in the campaign could help confirm that Deripaska had dropped the Pericles lawsuit and that Gates believed Manafort sent polling data to Deripaska as discussed further below so that Deripaska would not move forward with his lawsuit against Manafort. Gates further stated that Deripaska wanted a visa to the United States. Deripaska could believe that having Manafort in a position inside the campaign or administration might be helpful to Deripaska and that Manafort's relationships, Manafort's relationship with Trump could help Deripaska in other ways as well. Gates stated, however, that Manafort never told him anything specific about what, if anything, Manafort might be offering Deripaska. Gates also reported that Manafort instructed him in April 2016 or early May 2016 to send Kalimnik campaign internal polling data and other updates so that Kalimnik in turn could share it with Ukrainian oligarchs. Gates understood that the information would also be shared with Deripaska, next portion redacted for the grand jury. Gates reported to the office that he did not know why Manafort wanted him to send polling information, but Gates thought it was a way to showcase Manafort's work and Manafort wanted to open doors to jobs after the Trump campaign ended. Gates said that Manafort's instruction included sending internal polling data prepared for the Trump campaign by pollster Tony Fabrizio. Fabrizio had worked with Manafort for years and was brought into the campaign by Manafort. Gates stated that in accordance with Manafort's instructions, instruction, he periodically sent Kalimnik polling data via WhatsApp. Gates then deleted that communication on a daily basis. Gates further told the office that after Manafort left the campaign in mid-August, Gates sent Kalimnik polling data less frequently and that the data he sent was more publicly available information and less internal data. Gates' account about polling data is consistent. This next portion is uh, redacted for the grand jury. With multiple emails that Kalimnik sent to U.S. associates and press contacts between late July and mid-August of 2016, those emails reference internal polling describe the the status of the Trump campaign and Manafort's role in it and assess Trump's prospects for victory. Manafort did not acknowledge instructing Gates to send Kalimnik internal data. This last portion of the sentence is redacted for the grand jury. The office also obtained contemporaneous emails that shed light on the purpose of the communications with Deripaska and that are consistent with Gates' account. For example, in response to a July 7, 2016 email from a Ukrainian reporter about Manafort's failed Deripaska-backed investment, Manafort asked Kalimnik whether there had been any movement on this issue with our friend. Gates stated that our friend likely referred to Deripaska and Manafort told the office that the issue and our biggest interest, as stated below, was a solution to the deripaska pericles issue. Kalimnik replied, I am carefully optimistic on the question of our biggest interest. Our friend Boyarkin said there is lately significant more attention to the campaign in his boss Deripaska's mind, and he will be most likely looking for ways to reach out to you pretty soon, understanding all the time sensitivity. I am more than sure that it will be resolved 
And we will get back to the original relationship with V's boss, Deripaska. Eight minutes later, Manafort replied that Kalimnik should tell Boyarkin's boss, a reference to Deripaska, that if he needs private briefings, we can accommodate. Manafort has alleged to the office that he was willing to brief Deripaska only on public campaign matters and gave an example why Trump selected Mike Pence as the vice presidential running mate. Manafort said he never gave Deripaska a briefing. Manafort noted that if Trump won, Deripaska would want to use Manafort to advance whatever interest Deripaska had in the United States and elsewhere. Three, Paul Manafort's two campaign period meetings with Konstantin Kalimnik in the United States. Manafort twice met with Kalimnik in person during the campaign period, once in May and again in August 2016. The first meeting took place on May 7th, 2016 in New York City. In the days leading to the meeting, Kalimnik had been working to gather information about the political situation in Ukraine. That included information gleaned from a trip that former Party of Regions official Yuri Boyko had recently taken to Moscow, a trip that likely included meetings between Boyko and high-ranking Russian officials. Kalimnik then traveled to Washington, D.C. on or about May 5th, 2016. While in Washington, Kalimnik had prearranged meetings with State Department employees. Late on the evening of May 6th, Gates arranged for Kalimnik to take a 3 a.m. train to meet Manafort in New York for breakfast on May 7th. According to Manafort, during the meeting, he and Kalimnik talked about events in Ukraine, and Manafort briefed Kalimnik on the Trump campaign, expecting Kalimnik to pass the information back to individuals in Ukraine and elsewhere. Manafort stated that opposition bloc members recognized Manafort's position on the campaign was an opportunity, but Kalimnik did not ask for anything. Kalimnik spoke about a plan of Boyko to boost election participation in the eastern zone of Ukraine, which was the base for the opposition bloc. Kalimnik returned to Washington, D.C. right after the meeting with Manafort. Manafort met with Kalimnik a second time at the the Grand Havana Club in New York City on the evening of August 2nd, 2016. The events leading to the meeting are as follows. On July 28, 2016, Kalimnik flew from Kiev to Moscow. The next day, Kalimnik wrote to Manafort requesting that they meet using coded language about a conversation he had that day. In an email with the subject line, Black Caviar, Kalimnik wrote, I met today with the guy who gave you your biggest black caviar jar several years ago. We spent about five hours talking about his story and I have several important messages from him to you. He asked me to go and brief you on our conversation. I said, I have to run it by you first, but in principle, I am prepared to do it. It has to do about the future of his country and it's quite interesting. Manafort identified the guy who gave you your biggest black caviar jar as Yanukovych. He explained that in 20... 10, he and Yanukovych had lunch to celebrate the recent presidential uh, election. Yanukovych gave Manafort a large jar of black caviar that was worth approximately $30,000 to $40,000. Manafort's identification of Yanukovych as the guy who gave you your biggest black caviar jar is consistent with Kalimnik being in Moscow, where Yanukovych resided when Kalimnik wrote, I met today with the guy. And with the December 2016 email in which 
Kalimnik referred to Yanukovych as BG. This next part is redacted for the grand jury. Manafort replied to Kalimnik's July 29th email, Tuesday, August 2nd is best, Tuesday or Wednesday in NYC. Three days later, on July 31st, 2016, Kalimnik flew back to Kiev from Moscow and on that same day wrote to Manafort that he needed about two hours for their meeting because it is a long caviar story to tell. Kalimnik wrote that he would arrive at JFK on August 2nd at 7.30 p.m. and he and Manafort agreed to a late dinner that night. Documentary evidence including flight phone and hotel records and the timing of text messages exchanged confirms the dinner took place as planned on August 2nd. As to the contents of the meeting itself, the accounts of Manafort and Gates who arrived late to the dinner differ in certain respects, but their version of events when assessed alongside available documentary evidence and what Kalimnik told business associate Sam Patton indicate that at least three principal topics were discussed. First, Manafort and Kalimnik discussed a plan to resolve the ongoing political problems in Ukraine by creating an autonomous republic in its more industrialized eastern region of Donbas and having Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president, ousted in 2014, elected to head that republic. That plan, Manafort later acknowledged, constituted a backdoor means for Russia to control eastern Ukraine. Manafort initially said that if he had not cut off the discussion, Kalimnik would have asked Manafort in the August 2nd meeting to convince Trump to come out in favor of the peace plan. And Yanukovych would have expected Manafort to use his connections in Europe and Ukraine to support the plan. Manafort also initially told the office that he had said to Kalimnik that the plan was crazy that the discussion ended and that he did not call, recall Kalimnik asking Manafort to reconsider the plan after their August 2nd meeting. Manafort said, this is all redacted for the grand jury, that he reacted negatively to Yanukovych sending years later an urgent request when Yanukovych needed him. When confronted with an email written by Kalimnik on or about December 8, 2016, however, Manafort acknowledged Kalimnik raised the peace plan again in that email. Manafort ultimately acknowledged Kalimnik also raised the peace plan in January and February 2017 meetings with Manafort. The rest of this sentence is redacted for the grand jury. Second, Manafort briefed Kalimnik on the state of the Trump campaign and Manafort's plan to win the election. That briefing encompassed the campaign's messaging and its internal polling data. According to Gates, it also included discussion of battleground states, which Manafort identified as Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. Manafort did not refer explicitly to battleground states in his telling of the August 2nd discussion. And the last part of this sentence is redacted for the grand jury. He's talking in battleground states to people from Ukraine and Russia. Third, according to Gates and what Kalimnik told Patton, Manafort and Kalimnik discussed two sets of financial disputes related to Manafort's previous work in the region. Those consisted of the unresolved Deripaska lawsuit and the funds that the opposition bloc owed to Manafort for his political consulting work and how Manafort might be able to obtain payment. After the meeting, Gates and Manafort both stated that they left separately from Kalimnik because they knew the media was tracking Manafort 
and wanted to avoid media reporting on his connections to Kalimnik. C, post-resignation activities. Manafort resigned from the Trump campaign in mid-August 2016, approximately two weeks after his second meeting with Kalimnik amidst negative media reporting about his political consulting work for the pro-Russian party of regions in Ukraine. Despite his resignation, Manafort continued to offer advice to various campaign officials through the November election. Manafort told Gates that he still spoke with Kushner, Bannon, and candidate Trump, and some of those post-resignation contacts are documented in emails. For example, on October 21, 2016, Manafort sent Kushner an email attaching a strategy memorandum proposing that the campaign make the case against Clinton as the failed and corrupt champion of the establishment and that WikiLeaks provides the Trump campaign the ability to make the case in a very credible way by using the words of Clinton, its campaign officials, and DNC members. Later, in a November 5, 2016 email to Kushner entitled Securing the Victory, Manafort stated that he was really feeling good about our prospects on Tuesday and focusing on preserving the victory and that he was concerned that the the concern the Clinton campaign would respond to a loss by moving immediately to discredit the Trump victory and claim voter fraud and cyber fraud, including the, the claim that the Russians have hacked into the voting machines and tampered with the results. Just want to read that one more time including the claim that the Russians have hacked into the voting machines and tampered with the results. Trump was elected president on November 8th, 2016. Manafort told the office that in the wake of Trump's victory, he was not interested in an administration job. Manafort instead preferred to stay on the outside and monetize his campaign position to generate business, given his familiarity and relationship with Trump and the incoming administration. Manafort appeared to follow that plan as he traveled to the Middle East, Cuba, South Korea, Japan, and China, and was paid to explain what a Trump presidency would entail. Manafort's activities in early 2017 included meetings relating to Ukraine and Russia. The first meeting, which took place in Madrid, Spain, in January 2017, was with Georgi Oganov. Oganov, who had previously worked at the Russian embassy in the United States, was a senior executive at a Deripaska company and was believed to report directly to Deripaska. Manafort initially denied attending this meeting. When he later acknowledged it, he claimed that the meeting had been arranged by his lawyers and concerned only the Pericles lawsuit. Other evidence, however, provides reason to doubt Manafort's statement that the sole topic of the meeting was the Pericles lawsuit. In particular, text messages to Manafort from a number associated with Kalimnik suggests that Kalimnik and Boyarkin, not Manafort's counsel, had arranged the meeting between Manafort and Oganoff. Kalimnik's message states that the meeting was supposed to be not about money or Pericles, but instead about recreating the old friendship ostensibly between Manafort and Deripaska, and talking about global politics. Manafort also replied by text that he needs this finished before January 20th, which appears to be a reference to resolving Pericles before the inauguration. On January 15th, 2017, three days after his return from Madrid, 
Manafort emailed KT McFarlane, who was at that time designated to be deputy national security advisor and was formally appointed to the position to that position on January 20th, 2017. Manafort's January 15th email to McFarland stated, I have some important information I want to share that I picked up on my travels over the last month. Manafort told the office, Manafort told the office that the email referred to an issue regarding Cuba, not Russia or Ukraine, and Manafort had traveled to Cuba in the past month. Either way, McFarlane, who was advised by Flynn not to respond to the Manafort inquiry, appears not to have responded to Manafort. Manafort told the offices that around the time of the presidential inauguration in January, he met with Kalimnik and Ukrainian oligarch Siri Lyovachkin at the Westin Hotel in Alexandria, Virginia. During this meeting, Kalimnik again discussed the Yanukovych peace plan that he had broached at the August 2nd meeting and in a detailed December 8, 2016 message found in Kalimnik's DMP email account. In that December 8th email, which Manafort acknowledged having read, Kalimnik wrote, all that is required to start the process is a very minor wink or slight push from DT, an apparent reference to President-elect Trump and a decision to authorize you to be a special representative and manage this process. Kalimnik assured Manafort with with that authority, he could start the process and within 10 days visit Russia Yanukovych guarantees your reception at the very top level and that DT could have peace in Ukraine basically within a few months after inauguration. As noted above, this is redacted for the grand jury and statements to the office. Manafort sought to qualify his engagement on and support for the plan. The rest of the paragraph is redacted for the grand jury. On February 26, 2017, Manafort met Kalimnik in Madrid where Kalimnik had flown from Moscow. In his first two interviews with the office, Manafort denied meeting with Kalimnik on his Madrid trip. And then after being confronted with documentary evidence that Kalimnik was in Madrid at the same time as him, recognized that he met him in Madrid. Manafort said that Kalimnik had updated him on a criminal investigation into so-called Black Ledger payments to Manafort that was being conducted by Ukraine's National Anti-Corruption Bureau. The rest of this paragraph is redacted for the grand jury. Manafort remained in contact with Kalimnik throughout 2017 and into the spring of 2018. Those contacts included matters pertaining to the criminal charges brought by the office and the Ukrainian peace plan. In early 2018, Manafort retained his longtime polling firm to craft a draft poll in Ukraine, sent the pollsters a three-page primer on the plan sent by Kalimnik and worked with Kalimnik to formulate the polling questions. The primer sent to the pollsters specifically called for the United States and President Trump to support the autonomous Republic of Donbass with Yanukovych as prime minister. And a series of questions in the draft poll asked for opinions on Yanukovych's role in resolving the conflict in Donbass. The poll was not solely about Donbass. It also sought participants' views on leaders apart from Yanukovych as they pertain to the 2019 Ukrainian presidential election. The office has not uncovered evidence that Manafort brought the Ukraine peace plan to the attention of the Trump campaign or the Trump administration. 
Kalimnik continued his efforts to promote the peace plan to the executive branch. For example, the U.S. Department of State into the summer of 2018. We're all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors. All we know is to fight, pray. They see God in everything I write here. Yeah.